The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Thank you, Dustin. Well, good morning. Uh, If you have Bibles, uh, go ahead and open those up to Judges. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 2 today. Uh, We started the book of Judges last week, uh, and I have got a very, very interesting story for you. Uh, I'm going to throw out to you some names, and uh, I want you to see if you can kind of figure out uh, what, these, what these people have in common, all right? Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Ninja Turtles, Mozart, um, Lady Gaga, Bill Gates, Spike Lee, Keanu Reeves, get it? Anyone know? All okay, right, maybe, maybe this video will help you out. Check this out. You figure it out? They're left-handed. That's right. How many of you are left-handed? Okay, a few of you. Do you feel like it, it is a, a problem to be left-handed in a right-handed world? Yes. You guys struggle? You guys relate to a lot of those videos? So I was, I was thinking about, I, I'm not left-handed uh, because I'm normal. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, was, I was looking into le- this left-handed thing, and, um, and one of the most interesting things I saw is that, is that someone said, being left-handed, it's hard to hold playing cards when you fan them out in a left-handed way because all of the numbers are not on the top, they're on the bottom, and you can't see them. Is that, is that true? Do you guys hold your cards that way? You're like, no, I just adapt. But left-handedness, okay, so we live in this, this left-handed world, and, and you'd say, okay, well, there's a lot of disadvantages, but, but what, I've, what I've found is that there's a lot of advantages as well. You left-handed people find that there's, there's advantages also to being left-handed? Okay, so one of them I found was that uh, you have more of a, of a chance of being a genius if you're left-handed, Right? If you're left-handed, you, 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 have, you have more of a chance to have an IQ over 140. Uh, studies show that in most sports, the opponents aren't ready for the southpaw, Rocky Balboa, right? He throws them off. And, and so left-handed, you may have an advantage there. Uh, the most interesting thing, the most interesting advantage that I found of being left-handed is that actually left-handed people 
can see better underwater. I'm not kidding, that's a true thing. I don't know, I don't know why that's an advantage, but if you are playing underwater hide and seek, you should probably pick someone who's a lefty on your team. But listen, th- throughout history, this left-handed deal, this left-handed idea has always been considered a weakness. I don't know if you realize that. The Latin word for left is sinister, which also means evil. The French word for left actually means awkward. The English word for left comes from the old English word that actually means weak. And so it's evil, it's weak, it's awkward to be left-handed. That's why I'm normal. The, the word left is always viewed as negative. Nobody wants leftovers. They're gross, right? If somebody says, okay, you have two left feet, what are you? You're, you're clumsy, right? You trip over yourself. If you go to a party and no one's there and you ask the question, where did everyone go? They left. That's a Seinfeld joke, by the way. If you get the answer right on a game show, what do they say? That's right. And so I don't know if indirectly or directly, like there's this, there's this, there's this shadow over left-handed people. And believe it or not, left-handedness plays an important role in teaching us how God works in the world. Now, last week we read about a king who got captured and he got his thumbs and his big toes cut off, which is really interesting. And this week we read about a judge who's actually left-handed. And so I don't know what's worth, never be able to play heads up seven up again or being left-handed, you, you decide. Here's what's happening in Joshua right now. I mean, uh, judges. Joshua uh, was a great warrior. He was a great leader. Joshua took over after Moses and he led the people through many battles and many victories. And so God promised to Joshua and the people of Israel to give them the promised land, give them this land of Canaan. And so uh, not only did God promise to give them the land, but he, God promised to take the people out of the land and crush the people, remove them, and remove their idols of worship. See, they have these gods, they have these idols, and they're, they're bowing down to these idols who's not a true God. And he says, I'm going to actually get rid of all of them. But in Judges, it takes place right after Joshua died. And once Joshua died, all of these people, they start turning from the one true God and started turning toward worshiping the gods of the land, the God of the Canaanites. And in chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says, it says that the people, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods. From among these gods of the people were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Okay, so because of the people's disobedience, Joshua had led them, and now uh, Joshua died, and now the people are just looking for answers. They're looking for hope. They're looking to other gods. And because of their disobedience, and they started worshiping other gods, these made-up gods, God gave Israel over to their enemies. They were enslaved. It says that they were plundered. And in verse 15, it actually says that they found themselves in terrible, terrible distress. And then verse 16 comes, chapter 2. It says, then the Lord raised up judges 
who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. And so the people who are in distress, what happens is they start crying out to God. They start looking to say, hey, nothing seems to work. These gods aren't answering my prayers. We're being enslaved. We're being plundered. Life is terrible. And they finally cry out to God. Have you ever been in that place? That's where they are. And then in chapter two, pick it up in verse 20. It says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. What's the test? Here's the test. Whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel. Everyone say test. To test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Cana. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might no war. Now, in those verses, God says, okay, I'm gonna leave the people there for a couple of reasons. The first reasons I'm gonna put, I'm gonna keep the people there, I'm not gonna push them out, is so that I'm going to test them, so that I wanna see if they're gonna follow me and trust me and obey me like their fathers did or they're not. The second reason is so that they might know war. And that sounds interesting, doesn't it? God says, I'm not going to deliver the people quickly. I'm going to allow their enemies to remain in the land. Why? Because the first generation had not believed God, and he was going to see if you're going to believe God. He's going to see if if you're trusting God to drive out the people. And really, that was last week. And and so the reason chapter 3 gives is so that the people might know war. It was to help people learn to trust God for themselves. They were learning to fight in God's strength rather than their own. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, you're an Israelite kid, and you, you just get back from, uh, from Sabbath school or whatever, right? And, and, and you, you just learned about the heritage that God promised to your people, all right, you're, you're a young boy or a young lady, and, and you come home, and you're, you're like, Dad, um, I just learned today that God actually promised to give this land to us as his people, that God actually promised to give us the promised land. But as I look around, there's all these, like, Canaanites and all these false idols and all these, these other gods. God, why, why are all these unbelieving people still in our land? Why didn't God give the, give the land to us? And your dad says, well, you see, it's because of our parents. You see, our parents didn't trust God. They didn't obey God. They didn't rely on God. And then you're like, but but dad, that's, that's not our fault. That's their sin. 
That's, that's their sin, not our sin. So, so after they died, why didn't God just push them out once, once our grandparents passed away? Why didn't God give us the land then? I mean, he could have wiped them out with a hurricane or some, some killer bees or, or something radical like that. That would have been cool. And so uh, why didn't God just simply wipe them out then? And the answer is, son, daughter, to test us to see if we would believe and obey God. You see, God left them there in order to test us to see if we would trust God to fight for us. Let me ask you, do you ever wonder why God doesn't just take care of your sin and temptation all at once? You ever ask God to do that? God, I'm fighting with my flesh. God, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here. God, I have all these bents. I have all these iniquities. I have all this sin. God, why don't you just take it away? I mean, I, mean, I, I became a Christian so long ago, and still I'm still struggling. I mean, I mean, why don't you just wipe them out? Why wouldn't God just go ahead and, and give you, you know, the heaven experience? No more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more sin, no more struggle. Well, in part, I believe it's because he wants to teach us to trust him. He wants to show us war, how to fight in his strength and not our strength. There's times that God leaves pockets in your life that are a struggle that leave you crying out to God so that we would learn to rely on his grace and not our flesh or our own ability. Overcoming temptation and overcoming sin within our lives, it comes through trusting and leaning upon God's strength over and over and over again. And God knows to trust him and trust his grace and trust his power within us is a hands-on experience for us. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. It is a struggle. It's a constantly battle within me to say, God, I need your strength. God, I need your grace. And throughout the years of, of me living a war within myself and me living a battle within my flesh and my sin and my temptation, God, God, what God does is he makes me more and more uh, aware of the need of his grace. Anybody need grace? I mean, he's showing me more and more my understanding and my knowledge of not my own strength or my own ability or my own will, but rather a need for grace. And spiritual growth comes primarily through the knowledge of my need for grace. If we don't understand we need grace, like, like so many people try to live their lives not needing grace. I just want to get to a point where I never fall, I never struggle, so I don't need God's grace, I can just do it. Is that not how we live? But God says, listen, I transform you, I save you, I bring you, I brought you to myself, and you're going to have to rely on my strength and my grace for victory in your own life. That's how spiritual growth occurs. And so if God uses a continual struggle within me to help me make me understand my constant battle and my need for grace, then in the end, I can look up and say, okay, I'm trusting, God, that all things, all things work for good of those who love you, Lord. And I'm trusting you in this. And so in Judges chapter 3, verse 7, 
it says that they go back to their own ways. It says they do what is right in their own eyes. They go back to, to doing what, uh, what the Lord despised, and they pursue other gods and other idols. And then, and then in chapter 3, starting in verse 9, we see the first uh, salvation here. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, say, cry out. So when the people of Israel were finally had enough at their end, say, I can't do anymore, I can't do anything else, they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan Rishthayim. I practiced that. King of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishthayim so that the land had rest for 40 years. Then that judge died. And so God hears the cries of your heart. God hears the cries of his people. And in this case, he sends a judge, delivers them, and they have peace for 40 years. So I'm just imagining, after about 40 years comes another generation, kids of kids. Another generation comes, and then we find ourselves in verse 12. And the people of Israel again, say again, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had, not, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Eglon, everyone say Eglon. That's a, that's a fun name to say. Um, when, when I read this, I always think of, and this will show my age, I always think of the nemesis from Sonic the Hedgehog. Any Sega Genesis fans out there? Dr. Eggman Robotnik. That's what I think of. I mean, I don't know if he looks like that or not. I don't know if he has that shiny coat. But that's, that's what I think of. Anyway, that doesn't even matter. Eglon. King Eglon. He, uh, he oppressed the people for about 20 years, historically. He raped, he pillaged, he murdered the Israelites. And then something happens in verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Say, cry out. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud. Say, Ehud. You got Eglon and Ehud. Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjamite, a left-handed man. There it is. So, so historically, like I started to look into this, and, and it actually says that he couldn't even use his right hand. Not only was he just left-handed, like there was something wrong, like he was either disabled, he was born with a withered hand, he got it chopped off, or something happened that he couldn't even use his right hand. And so in this age, like society was really, really cruel to disabled people. They would actually see someone without their right hand as completely useless, worthless. 
And so it would have meant that in, in the culture, in the society, he wasn't seen as a threat. He was actually useless. But it turns out that Ehud was a very, very brave man, and he was a man of faith. And, and so what happens is that he, he actually volunteers to bring a tribute to the king, the king Eglon. And so he loaded up his wagon with gold, uh, and then he packed a little bit of an extra surprise. Let's read about it. Verse 16. Ehud made for himself... A sword with two edges, a cubit in length, which it says about 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I get this picture of Jabba the Hutt. I mean, when, when the Bible says, I want to point out something, he's really fat, okay? That's what I'm thinking of. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had, pre- had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded Silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him, and he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Now, Eglon, he, he, he didn't even see it coming. Why? Because this dude's, I mean, he, he's, he's crippled, he's left handed. No way this guy is a threat or else he wouldn't be left alone with him and he just brought him some gold, right? And so here's Eglon, right? He's not seen as a threat. They leave him unattended and and his servants are like, there's this disabled guy. He brought you some gold and the king's like, bring him in. And then he's like, hey, I got a secret. Oh, what is it? Let's read about it. Verse 21. When he said, hey, I got a message from God from you, and he rose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, because that's the only one he's got, he took the sword from his right thigh and thrusted it into his fat belly. And the hilt went in after the blade. That's the handle, like that's the whole thing. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Yes, that's what happened. I could just, I could just picture this, like, this moist like suction sound. And then the moist suction sound. Right? I mean, it is just, this is a mess. He, he le- he's like, I don't even want to bring that sword back out. I'm not doing anything else with it. I'm just going to leave it in there. The dung came out, verse 23. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked it. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber because it smells horrible. That smell, oh, he must be going to the bathroom or something. This guy's, 
Verse 29, and they waited until they were embarrassed. They're like, do we go in? Do we not? Do we say, hey, are you okay? What's that smell? Right? They actually waited until they were embarrassed, but he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber. They took the key, they opened the doors, and there laid the Lord dead on the floor. What an amazing story. So after this, it says that Ehud escaped He sounded the trumpet, and that led the attack, and then Moab was defeated. And it says that they were at rest for 80 years. So within this kind of colorful yet disgusting story, listen, there's really three essential principles, three keys that that we can take for our own spiritual victory. And the first one is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. The one true Savior would come in weakness. The one true Savior from God, Jesus Christ, comes in weakness. With Ehud, there's a, there's a starting of this very strategic trajectory from God. So through the book of Judges and through the Bible, you're going to see this kind of theme over and over again. And so the book of Judges starts with Joshua, a very strong, a very dominant, a a very uh, great leader. And then there's this shift because all the people would, would follow a leader like that and they would trust God and they would fight in their own strength and fight in their army. But then comes Ehud. Ehud, he's a, he's, a, he's a left-handed man. He's a, he's a crippled leader. And at first, he doesn't even fight with an army. He actually goes in and kills Eglon himself. And then he goes, gets the army, and then the army fights. And so what we need to see is that, is that the book of Judges, it goes from strength to great weakness. It goes from Israel winning battles under a great warrior and a great leader and a great strong army, and then it shifts to a left-handed man who only had one limb, who no one expected to defeat the enemy himself. You see this through David, the little shepherd boy who would come out and slay the giant but it points all the way to the most unexpected Savior of all. Jesus Christ is the most unlikely Savior, and the world was not ready for him. Jesus Christ, in Isaiah, it says, it says that there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him, that he was actually despised and he was rejected by men. He was, he, was, he, was, he was born in a manger. And, and people in the New Testament, they actually say, Nazareth? Could anything good come from Nazareth? Who is this? Isn't this, 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 this the carpenter's son? And so Jesus would come in a great weakness. And you would never looked at Jesus and thought, wow, that guy must be the savior of the world. Wow, because he's poor, he's homeless, he's wandering around from town to town. He's probably not tall, probably not handsome, doesn't look anything like Jim Caviezel. He's unexpected, Jesus. He came and he achieved victory all alone. 
And he he achieved the victory for his people, not with the help of his people, but by himself. He was crushed, and he crushed the people's enemies, and he came in a great weakness. Just as Ehud's victory was a surprise to King Eglon, Jesus' victory came as a complete surprise to the forces of evil. Jesus' victory came in a complete surprise that no one saw it coming. The, 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 The Roman political leaders who crucified him. I know what we're gonna do with this Jesus. Let's put him on a cross as a spectacle so people can come and spit on him and mock him. We'll actually put a crown of thorns on his head and say, hail, king of the Jews, and we'll beat him to death to make a mockery out of him to show the world how weak this Jesus actually is and how weak he is so that you would never follow him. The Jewish leaders, they put him in a grave they, they rolled a, a stone in front of the tomb and put guards in front of there and like, okay, we're gonna beat this guy. He's not only crucified, but now he's buried. And hanging on the cross and buried in the tomb, they're like, he is no threat at all. Yet on the third day, Jesus pulls out this 18-inch dagger of resurrection and he stabs death right in the heart and he swallows it up. And so listen to me, judges points to Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And so Judges points us to the fact that God has brought salvation to all people in a way that no one's expecting, that no one's actually looking, that even today when we talk about Jesus, people will just miss it because they'll think, oh, maybe it's religion, oh, maybe it's works, oh, maybe it's morality, or maybe it's a good person. And you miss the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so Judges points us to Jesus. Paul says that Jesus was a stumbling block to both Jews and Greeks because he didn't meet their expectation. When the Jews thought about salvation, they were looking for a mighty warrior king, one who would come and lead the armies against Rome and then then end all the oppression and deliver all the people. The Greeks, the Greeks were looking for a great philosopher king, someone to educate and enlighten their world. The, 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 no one expected the homeless savior. No one expected the one who would be crucified like a criminal. Listen, don't miss the invitation of Jesus. Don't miss the Jesus because you're looking for some other kind of savior, some other thing that you worship to make your God that would somehow deliver you over your oppression. And so a lot of times we, when, when we cry out to the Lord, we cry out for other saviors rather than crying out to God himself to come save us. And so we're asking God, we want to cry out. We don't want to miss Jesus. Some might say, some people might say, you know what? Um, I would only trust Jesus if he would do something for me. Like, you know, deliver me from pain. I would only trust Jesus if he would actually deliver me from weakness. And since I haven't found, you know, in the last couple of years, I haven't found deliverance over my enemies, I don't know if I can trust Jesus. I'm looking for maybe a different savior. I'm looking for something else to be my savior. I'm looking for Jesus to provide for me some type of earthly blessing so that I would then follow him. But what if? What if God had a different way of salvation What if our main problem wasn't suffering from local armies? 
or suffering here on earth, but rather our biggest problem is a separation between us and God. What if that's the biggest issue? What if the real tragedy was not necessarily that I suffer in in weakness, but the fact that I die in the first place? That death comes from us all because the wages of sin is death. What if Jesus saved us by removing the curse, by taking our place upon the cross? And what if Jesus actually delivers us spiritually by putting death to death by his resurrection? What if that was the promised land that Jesus came to bring us into? What if that was the Jesus that we followed so that all who come to Jesus could actually truly say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? And so the first thing I want you to learn is that the one true Savior came in great weakness and that we ought not miss him. The second thing is this. God saves us now through the weakness of faith. Do you understand that every one of us in some way is trying to save ourselves? That every person in some way acknowledges something's not right, something's not Goods. There's something, whether that's within me or, or outside of me, something's not right, and, and I'm trying with all of my strength to somehow save myself. Every person knows they need some type of salvation. Both the religious and the irreligious people, they know this. We just seek it in different places. Religious people, they, they try to earn their salvation before God, which means they try to be good enough or morally strong enough or do some things so that God would, in the end, be pleased with them and say, oh, okay, you did a good job, you did enough good works, you can come in, and that God would accept me. The irreligious people try to find salvation outside of God, but it's not uniquely different. It's the same approach. They try to be strong enough uh, 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 mentally, They try to find meaning and purpose in their lives. They try to fulfill some type of uh, earthly savior, earthly goal. And so we say, oh, you know what? If I'm rich enough, then I'll find salvation and, you know, comfort and happiness. If I'm a good enough mother or father or spouse, then I'll know that I I did something worthwhile, that I I raised up a good child or I helped my husband get ahead or 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 whatever it is. And so we say, okay, well then I'm worth something. And or or if I if I just set myself apart in some way, if I climb some ladder, then I won't have some great purpose and people will acknowledge that I'm great. Or or if I can just find the right person to love, then my life would actually have meaning. Do you see what I'm talking about? We're all looking for that one thing that would finally satisfy the longings of our heart. And these are all ways we search for salvation. Searching for freedom. Searching for rescue from the bondage of futility. Searching for the hope out of dissatisfaction and meaningless and pain. God's true salvation comes in a different way. God's true salvation is not through morality. It's not through religious strength. It's not through career strength or worldly success. 
The salvation that God offers comes through something as simple as faith. No work to be done, nothing to earn, just faith. Philippians 3, Paul talks about how he tried salvation by both religious and irreligious works. That he tried it all. He's like, listen, I was the most religious person. I kept the law to the T. I, I tried to find purpose in, in setting myself apart and being, being the hyper-religious person. And, and, and he goes on, he says, listen, I'm the most intellectual because I graduated from the best school and I had the best job. And then when he comes to Christ, he looks back at all those things and he says, actually, it's all dung. Like, it's all worthless, it's all meaningless. And so he says, I, I've been thinking these things, but really the gift is the gift of faith. That's how you receive the salvation that Jesus offers. It is the weakness of faith. It's so simple that even a child could receive it. First Corinthians, it says that Jews and Greeks stumble over this salvation because it looks foolish to them. And it looks foolish to many of you. It may look foolish to the world because it, it, it doesn't really make sense. It is kind of a, a weakness. It's a, it's, a, it's a, I can't try hard enough to earn it. You see, the Jews want to earn it through moral and, and morality and religion. Greeks want to earn it through mental strength. Romans want to do it through political strength and power. But God's righteousness, God's wisdom, God's blessing can only be received by faith. It's a gift. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. For God chose what is foolish in the world, Jesus Christ, to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen, we do not stand in the presence of God and say, look at how awesome I am, because you're not awesome. We don't stand in the presence of God and say, look at how great I did, or how much I achieved, or, or doesn't my scales tip in a good manner? We don't stand before God and boast. Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that righteousness, sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We stand before God and say thank you. I praise you. You govern me with your blood. You gave me your spirit. You clothed me in righteousness. You sanctify me. You redeem me. You've done all of this, and I've come only in the weakness of faith. The third thing is this. In God's kingdom, availability is more important than ability. In God's kingdom, availability is more important than ability. See, Ehud was a very unlikely candidate to be a hero. He didn't even have a strong right hand. Yet, he was willing to be used by the Spirit of God. And so listen, God's kingdom in the world today does not come through your ability, but rather your availability. Listen, I do not stand up here week after week trying to lean on my own ability, my own understanding, my own knowledge, my own, my own way. Listen, listen, I can't do that. You don't even want that. 
What we need is we need to say, God, I'm available. Will you use me? Will you teach me? I don't understand things. I don't understand stuff. I don't know how this all works. I need you to strengthen me and empower me, and I'm simply making myself available for you to be used by you for you in your kingdom. And so, I mean, I just, I just got to ask this question, like, how many of you are leaning on the crutch of I'm not good enough before you start serving? Or are you leaning on the crutch, I'm not available enough to be used by God? I mean, those are two opposite ends of the spectrum, but many people will say, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm smart enough. I don't know this book well enough. I don't know if I sing well enough. I don't know if I do well enough. I, and listen, God's not after your ability. He's after your availability. And so if we start to say, well, I could do that, or I can do that, or maybe God could use me in that, all of a sudden we default and say, I'm just not available, God. I, you know, I, I'm too busy. I would have that conversation with that person. I would pray for that person. I would go minister to that person. I would serve in the church. I would do some things, but I'm just not available. Listen, if you want to experience the power of God in your life and you want to experience the kingdom of God in your life, it's not about your ability. It's about your availability. And so today, Jesus advances his kingdom not through human strength, but willing vessels. Let me ask you, are you willing to say, God, here I am. Just take me, use me in all of my left-handedness, all, in all of my weakness, not by my might, not by my power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. Let me just tell you, the truth of Christianity is simply that we don't save ourselves. You know that. Listen, we don't save ourselves, but rather God gives Salvation as a gift. We don't save ourselves. God gives salvation as a gift. Jesus died in a place to purchase the gift of salvation, and he offers it to you to be received by faith. And just like we don't save ourselves in our own strength, we don't serve God in our own strength. You don't serve God in your own strength, in your own ability. You don't fight the battles against the Canaanites on your own strength. He's teaching you to learn and trust and obey and make yourself available and watch him work. Watch him move. We don't serve God in our own strength. We just simply say, I'm your vessel. Here I am, God. I've died to myself. I am completely yours. Fill me with your spirit and just, just walk with me. Let me follow you so that your kingdom can be seen by others. We ask God to work through us today. But today, maybe you found yourself in a place where you're just, you just need to cry out to God. Listen, if, if you go in the back after service and you pray with a prayer partner, sometimes that requires weakness. You come to the altar and you fall on your face and say, God, would you save me? That requires weakness. You just simply are bold enough to raise a hand and say, I'm crying out to God. That is a, that is a method of weakness according to our world. But in God's kingdom, that's relying on his strength. And no more of me, 
less of me, more of you. No, no more of my own strength, no more of my ability, no more of my efforts. I need you. Jesus came in weakness. He offers salvation through weakness. And it's not your strength that gets you to God. It's your availability. Would you just simply make yourself available? I would encourage you today to reach up to the Lord. Maybe you need to cry out to God for the first time in a long time. Maybe you need to acknowledge that with a friend. Jesus is the true and only Savior, and I would encourage you today to reach out to the Lord. Reach out to him, not in your strength, not in your boasting, but in your left-handed weakness. And Hold on, grab hold to the righteousness of Christ. Get rid of your right hand of strength. Stop leaning upon that because it is useless before God, and say, God, would you be my strength? God, would you be my righteousness? Would I today cast my cares upon you? Would I just come to you and confess my sin to you because you are faithful and just to forgive me of all of my sins and to cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness, not because I'm a good person, but because you are the perfect Savior. Are you walking in in strength? Have you said yes to Jesus in every area of your life? Listen, if we're a church, it's going to be a people that are mighty in faith and mighty in spirit and mighty in obedience. We must lay down our abilities and strength before God and ask him to come and be our strength and to follow him. Let's pray for that. Lord Jesus, Lord, I first, I start, I lift up before you the people who have missed you. Those who are here this morning who just have been looking for something other than a sacrificial Savior. People who have been looking for something other than Jesus in their place. And it's so easy to do. Jesus, may, may we not see you just as a way, but today, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to see you as the way. I pray that today we would not see you as a means in which we can earn our way to you, but you are the means and the way. That you are the complete Savior my soul. God, I pray for those who have boasted in their own strength and their own religion for so long that it's leave them empty and worthless and in bondage. I pray today that the men and women that hear your voice will come to you. Great weakness. Asking you to be their strength not trusting in any other savior, any other means, but God, pray that we would trust you, Jesus. For today, with every eye closed and every head bowed, I want to take a step towards you this morning, cry out, Asking and looking for you to meet us right here. So if you're here today, just need the Lord to be your strength in any area.
Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's, maybe it's through a, a, a family situation. Maybe it's something in life that's just burdened you. If you just need God's strength today, would you, would you just lift up your left hand and say, this is my sign of weakness? This is me, oh Lord. This is me struggling, needing, hoping. This is me wanting, confessing my weakness before you. Right now, in your own voice, as you're lifting your left hand, would you just simply cry out? Tell the Lord right now that you are available. God wants to wreck your life today so that you would know his grace. Give him permission to do that, not that he needs it. Oh, Lord, my weakness come. I offer myself completely to you. Lead me in your ways. Let me trust you above all. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we've worshiped and longed and chased other idols. Today, lead us back. Save us to the one true Lord, the one true God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray.